Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we kick off with this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to give you another quick reminder that this episode is also available on video. So if you prefer to watch as well as listen to your podcasts, then why not check out the Spiked podcast on video when you get the chance? You can either get it on the Spiked YouTube channel or via the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Now onto this week's Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week we have Spikes deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spikes columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the oppression Olympics, trans patients in NHS wards and the hounding of a pro-Brexit trade unionist. So Tokyo 2020 has come to a close and there's been something of a culture war over the meaning of the Olympic spirit, I think it's fair to say. There have been some spectacular sporting performances as ever, but most of the commentary has tended to focus on the athlete's identity, their mental health, and in some cases, the fact that they're not even taking part at all. I mean, Tom, what are some of your highlights and lowlights from this? Well, as you say, I mean, Mick's made this point, Mick Hume has made this point on Spike since the Olympics began, is that they always start under this kind of fog of controversy, mm. talk about corruption. I mean, even London 2012, I mean, you tweeted this the other day, Fraser, people yeah. remember it as this great coming together for the nation. It was so much whinging, yeah. even about relatively low level things like parking or whatever, you know. In the run up to <laughs> it's going to be terrible. We're going <laughs> to embarrass ourselves in front of the whole All world. All this sort of stuff. Going into Tokyo 2020, you know, delayed because of the pandemic, obviously, um, it, it seemed to be so much worse because obviously you had the mm. pandemic going on. Um, most citizens of Japan not even wanting it to go ahead. No fans in stadiums. You had a nasty outbreak of cancel culture in the organising committee in the days beforehand. You know, the guy who was um, directing the opening ceremony, I believe, you know, sacked because of a joke he told 23 years ago. Mm. All of this kind of stuff. Sacked the day before the opening ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like it was going to be a mess. And then, of course, as we all know, woke politics infects everything. Um, but... It did feel like we were starting to break through all of that, even from last week with all the Simone Biles stuff, which I'm sure we'll come back to in a second. Mm. Because of just the sporting excellence on display, that always cuts through. You know, that Norwegian hurdle jumper, was his name, Carsten Warsholm, beating his own world record in the 400 metre hurdles. You know, a feat so superhuman, he literally rips open his own shirt <laughs> at the end. Um, Charlotte Worthington, the... Um, G- Team GB BMX are doing that crazy backflip 360, which I think really actually um, even doubters like myself who are wondering why BMX is in the Olympics kind of, you know, gives you <laughs> gives yeah. you pause. It definitely should be there more than the horse dancing or whatever it's called in my view at this <laughs> point. Much more Olympian. But you can't help but get away from the fact that the things that this games are going to be remembered for are Simone Biles dropping out of her of a number of her events, um, citing her mental health and that being celebrated almost as the ultimate victory, mm. <laughs> which is quite interesting. And Laurel Hubbard, who was presented as the great history maker of the games um, for competing as a trans woman in the women's category, also the oldest person ever to compete. I thought it was telling that the person who ended up winning the gold from China was 21 years old. Tells you something about why you, just, you, you divide these sports in that respect. That's really being talked up as the the great difference in these games some of those achievements have kind of been put to the side yeah and it's just a bit unfortunate i think because you know you can't help but keep politics and our cultural discussions can't help but kind of color sporting events mm. but it, it shouldn't completely overtake them <laughs> you know this shouldn't be the means through which we actually 
reward and honour people, but it seems like we're getting towards that place to some extent. Yeah, definitely. And Simone Biles is probably the archetypal example of that, where, you know, most of her events, she in the end didn't compete. And I mean, Ella, you wrote a bit about this, how, especially for women in particular, it seemed as if their sporting achievements were being overshadowed. It was always one of those uncomfortable things that, you know, a lot of commentators want to say something about the Olympics, but they don't necessarily know very much about sport. And I mean, me included, but (laughs) rather than just kind of leave this the the Olympics as something kind of sacred actually about focusing on the human body and you know the human kind of mentality of being able to get yourself in that mindset for competition and talking about that there always has to be try and kind of force some kind of either cultural narrative or um uh, you know therapy culture narrative onto it and that's what happened particularly with women you had Actually, in in Team GB, lots of women coming forward and doing amazing things, like the Charlotte Worthington um, BMX uh, backflip in, in 360 flip. The reason why it was so terrifyingly unbelievable because it was the second time she'd ever done it on the wooden floor. And so she tried it out once before the Olympics and thought, Jesus, this is really like, terrifying. I'm a bit scared, but screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. And then mm. one, and you know, what an amazing thing to do. Um, the, you know, Emily Campbell getting silver in the weightlifting, um, Sky Brown, who's 12 or something doing again, 13, skate, think, yeah. Oh, yeah, skateboarding and, you know, my prejudice, like you told me, <laughs> skateboarding. It's, but, not, it's not Greco-Roman wrestling. Yeah, but you know, here's a young person who's pushing the limits, and it's amazing. And women doing these things. I mean, the the hundred meter um, sprinter from Jamaica, who you know is has that kind of uh, aggressive, competitive, really attractive mentality that Usain Bolt has, it just as like showing off in front of the cameras. It's brilliant to watch. All of that gets sidelined by the discussion about Simone Biles' mental health, um, about, you know, even someone like Dina Asher-Smith's mental health and about how, you know, that, I think, quite exploitative post-race interview where it was like her emotions were on display and everyone was saying how great it is that she could be open about how upset she is. We should be talking about women's achievements and when women... Um, succeed rather than women when women fail. I mean, we talked about this in the, in one of the last podcasts. There's a real aversion to accepting that failure is a part of the Olympics. Inevitably, all the athletes know that, but instead you've got to turn failure into this sort of, um, human feat about mental health when actually that's not that's not that's a place for a different discussion not the rough and tumble of the olympics that's meant to be about winning medals that's what you're there to do and there was even a kind of um i mean not just failure has seemed to be valorized but the sort of the taking part in and of itself has been mm. valorized more than ever before yeah. now that's always been a big part of the olympics it is obviously an honor simply to be there but even the slogan of the olympics was changed this year you know it's been harder faster stronger since the modern olympics existed and now we have together yeah. uh, added to it and we saw this in some sporting events where you know the high jump where the italian and qatari high jumpers effectively decided to share their medal mm-hmm. rather than um rather than compete for the for the gold and you know isn't this just kind of downgrading what it means to be yeah. what, sporting excellence you know isn't sport about winning ultimately I mean, yeah and it's always been a tension in there mm. obviously because as you say you know um, baron de coubertin the bloke who set it up in the modern olympiad he um he actually said the words you know it's not the winning it's the taking part but also mm. gave it that slogan so it's always yeah. been this bit of tension but you can see in which direction the kind of needle is moving and it's not just the taking part it's also being yourself it's yeah. being true to yourself all of this is kind of crept into it and i think a distinction that mick made in one of his pieces recently was to say that 
again, you can't keep politics out of sport. It's a bit naive to assume that you can, especially big international competitions, which always have all kinds of different things kind of shrouded over them. It used to be geopolitics more than than, than what we're seeing today. (laughs) As it were. But the politics that is creeping into it is anti-Olympian. That's the point that he makes. And I think there's a lot lot to that because of the fact that, you know, you're celebrating people because of who they are, because Mm. of how open they're being, rather than their achievements and this is something which completely cuts against the grain so it's a different kind of thing that we're dealing with here um and you can't really keep you know politics out of sport but i think keeping the culture war in its current manifestation out of sport would probably be a good place to start at least and isn't the other difference i mean you know because obviously the the famous instance of politics creeping into sport is the raised fist Mm. in the 1960s but a lot of the kind of politics is actually coming from the top, coming from the kind of, you know, organiser level, from the corporate sponsor level, particularly, you know, with the rule change this year that you are allowed to do sort of taking the knee style protests. And we saw we saw Raven Saunders to mm. kind of ex shot putter, yeah. shot putter um, to, you know, highlight the intersection of oppressions and things like that. So, you know, it's 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 also not even coming necessarily. It's not being driven by the players, even if they're the ones that are kind of taking part in it. Yeah, well, that's the the difference between raising a fist or, you know, um, actually even, as we've always said, the initial taking of the knee by Colin Kaepernick. There's something very different from a spontaneous political statement that breaks the rules. And actually mm. the important thing is about it being a protest that breaks the rules rather than a protest that's sanctioned by or even actually mandated yeah. by, as we see in football, um, by a kind of top-down or, you know, by the organisation. And so it's not actually expressing anything that the players or Olympians themselves feel. It's about saying, this is the the uh, line and you've got to tow it. Yeah. And Laurel Hubbard, uh, the instance of Laurel Hubbard taking part was a really good example of this because, you know, never mind what you think about uh, Laurel Hubbard taking part. I think there's a very, you know, I agree with the um, kind of feminists who say that it's very unfair for someone with a uh, body that's uh, benefited from puberty and is obviously quite um, different in its makeup to women to take part in women's um, sport and therefore you know take a woman's place who would otherwise have been competing. But the the kind of response to Laurel Hubbard even taking place, despite the fact that she lost, despite the fact she didn't qualify because she didn't even make the set or whatever, however you put it. Then the three on the podium, the three women who won medals, were then asked a question saying, what mm. do you think about the mm. fact that Laura Hubbard has become the first person to do, first trans person to take part? And there was this kind of deafening silence. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's hard to tell whether it's that they were too scared to say something because they didn't want to be transphobic. Or actually, I think it was more that they, they just thought, why the hell are you asking me about this? Mm. In you know, if this is my time to shine. <laughs> yeah. They ask might me have been quite my, pissed off about the whole situation. Yeah, yeah. ask me about my but... training routine. Ask me about how I won. Ask me about how if I don't. Me ask me about someone else. But there you have this other thing: gender politics trying to come in and and artificially mm. intervene into what is where it it shouldn't exist, where it isn't relevant. And and you know, for someone like Emily Campbell winning the silver for GB, I mean, she's kind of overshadowed by the yeah. fact that. Yeah. But, you know, this is historic thing. Well, what about her historic moment? I mean, I mean the fact that in those events where Laurel Hubbard and Timon Biles um, respectively, you know, barreled out or got the bronze medal, no one knows, who, who, no one can remember who got the gold in those instances. I think they were both Chinese athletes, yeah, as it turned yeah. out. No one remembers those things. And I think that's telling, yeah. you know, and that's something that's quite striking. And the other thing, which is this implicit or explicit comparison, which always goes on between some of the podium protests we've seen, or at least some of the ones that we've told might take place or happen in some of the qualifying rounds, and Tommy Smith and John Carlos in Mexico in 1968 throwing up the raised fist, is such a ridiculous comparison. Like, (laughs) First of all, as you guys have said, people 
are basically being applauded for making these gestures. Yeah. Those guys were hounded out of athletics for making yeah. that statement. Yeah. And that's something that's definitely worth remembering. Now, the IOC did loosen the rules a little bit. I think they were tr- they're still kind of holding the line on the idea that the podium should be sacred. But I don't think anyone genuinely believes Raven Saunders is going to be hauled over the coals no. for this. I think her mother's also just died, which is awful. But it's still the case that there's no risk to doing this yeah. in the way that there was then. Also, the political context is so different because we're seeing all of these very ostentatious gestures in relation to questions of racism. It's nothing like it was in 1968. I mean, that Olympics, I think, was just months after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. America was figuratively and literally on fire at the mm. time and with racial divisions and real racism to an extent that is unimaginable today. So to compare those things, I think, is utterly <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> Aside from anything else, they do not have the potency that they once had. And to suggest otherwise, I think, is, is really, really strange. That's the problem is that a lot of this isn't making a big political statement. It's virtue signalling, which, as we all know, is a very, very different thing. Well, absolutely. And it has, you know, it has the backing of the IOC. It has the backing of the corporates. I mean, it's the it's the kind of woke problem in general that we're talking about. Poses as radical, but is really, you know, very much part of the establishment, very much supported by the the authorities. Um, we should talk a bit more about Laurel Hubbard, I think. Um, it's fascinating to see the sort of BBC producing a sort of 3,000 word hagiography, you know, the reluctant history maker, and then um, basically threatening to report anyone to the police uh, if they said anything mean <laughs> in response. <laughs> Completely remarkable. I mean, for an organisation like the BBC that that ties itself in so many knots trying to be politically neutral and goes on about the importance of objectivity to essentially, like you say, you know, threaten their <laughs> followers um, by saying that if anyone even kind of, you know, says something vaguely negative about Laurel Hubbard, whether that's that they, you, you know, you disagree with her mm. as a trans person being in this category or you just think she's actually a crap weightlifter, whatever your opinion is, um, if you do, if you kind of disagree with us or if you say something critical, we will report you to the relevant authorities. So, or block you. Or, or there was, other, there, yeah. was, there, was yeah. a, there was a gradient of yeah. punishment. <laughs> but that, you know, the kind of, sensitivity most i think it's the most interesting thing the sensitivity to having any kind of criticism of an athlete is very telling because you know if you if laurel hubbard who knows is you know i don't think that she's doing it on the basis of trying to screw up women's sport no. i think that there's been a kind of a there was a slightly uncomfortable desire i think among some gender critical feminists of, of wanting her to get through and almost wanting her to win so that they can be like look how unfair it is um which is you know an olympian is there because they want to win they want to win medals and and that should be respected but also you can't go in and do something as controversial and i think as as wrong as take part in a women's sport when you very obviously have a physical advantage in the way that people who are born with male bodies and go through puberty have without expecting some pushback as this real denial of the idea of what is kind of commonplace normal view of of sport and there have been countless people like um uh, you know martina vratilova and all these sort of people have come forward and said hang on a minute mm. we have to be able to talk about this not be nasty online but we have to be able to talk about this and for the bbc to not realize that it's and bbc sport which has millions of followers to not be able to realize that this is you know actually criticism and a and a and a reluctance to being so sensitive to criticism is part of sport do you, you when you compete you expect people to say you you know armchair slobs to say you're crap that's yeah. part of what yeah. you what you do but it's also just the the attempts to dampen down criticism about this or to cast aspersions about people who raise issues with this it's fundamentally ridiculous because you could be completely supportive of trans rights of trans people's right to you know have a have a good life to be as free as, as humanly possible as anyone to be 
and recognise that there's a problem with someone who's been through male puberty competing in women's sports. I mean, it's just obvious. I mean, you have to ignore the evidence of your own eyes to think that this isn't a problem. Yeah. It's clearly not just about testosterone levels. That was the big rule change back in 2015, I think, which allowed Laurel Hubbard to be able to uh, progress onto the Olympics. You know, if you watch some of the mixed relay events and like the swimming and the running and whatever that, that have taken place this year, and you see, depending on how they've kind of sequenced it team to team, you know, the men tearing up big leads, which then mm. when they hand the baton over or, or tag in the woman, things slow down. Like, it's obvious. Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't undermine the achievements of the women, of course not. But this is why you make these kinds of distinctions. And to pretend that this stuff isn't a problem is ridiculous. I mean, even, I think her name was um, Joanne Harper, is one that, is a trans academic who actually, whose work kind of fed into the IOC's shift in position, said that on balance she supported the Laurel Hubbard's inclusion. But at the same time, you've got to look at this because if anything, weight, women's weightlifting is one area where you might think, this isn't appropriate. So even she will see the nuance yeah. in all of this, if you see what I mean. But you're expected to just ignore that because gender ideology has to conquer all before it. Mm. And I think particularly when you talk about women's spaces, women's sports, etc., it's almost like the burden of proof is on women to explain why this drastic change cannot happen rather yeah. than the other way around. You know, that's what's really quite strange about all of it. Regular listeners to the Spiked podcast know just how much I love to share things I've learned from the great courses, plus things about history, politics, economics, and more. And I've been getting some fantastic feedback from so many of you who've signed up too. Now, the great courses plus is Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. It's everything we already loved about the great courses plus, but so much more. If you haven't signed up to Wondrium yet, what are you waiting for? I've been having so much fun listening to the great revolutions of modern history recently. You often forget the sheer number of revolutions that have taken place across the world. In school history, if you're lucky, you might learn something about the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or the American Revolution. But some of the most important events that have shaken the world, revolutions like the Haitian Revolution, for instance, are completely unknown to the average person. Plus there's always something I find relatable about those people, wherever they are in the world, whatever period of history they live in, that refuse to accept the status quo and take action to make their situation better. So I cannot recommend this program enough. But that's not all. Wondrium has thousands of hours of fascinating, mind-blowing video and audio content to explore. There's documentaries, tutorials, travel logs and more. You can find answers to questions you've always wondered about, and even to those you've never thought to ask. And you should use our special URL so they know where you came from. Go now to wondrium.com slash spiked. And for a limited time, when you sign up, you'll get a free month of unlimited access. So that's wondrium.com slash spiked. W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked again wondrium.com slash spiked and that brings us nicely on to the other story about uh, gender ideology this week so the health secretary has launched an investigation into nhs guidance on transgender patients after it was revealed that it's possible for male-bodied sex offenders to still be allowed into women's uh, single-sex wards, providing that they identify as women. Now, what do we make of this? Again, is this sort of gender ideology trumping, you know, women's rights, women's safety? 
this one is like it's really good example of why you need to unpick what's really going on with these rows about uh, particularly about trans because the the main problem with the NHS is that they promised to have single sex to institute single sex wards you know over a decade ago and anyone who's been to a hospital and stayed overnight anytime recently knows that that doesn't happen and it's pretty awful when you're because when you go to hospital and you're staying overnight you're sick you're very sick if you're probably staying overnight um you get up to go to the toilet with your gown flapping open and you don't you you want to be a bit like changing rooms a bit like mm. toilets you want to be in a place where it's kind of sex segregated and you feel relaxed and I don't mind if the women in the ward see my see my ass when I'm going to the toilet because you just that's you're in a very vulnerable position when you are a patient um, and so therefore the kind of the idea that the NHS would have someone who would just present and say I am a woman and perhaps you know in certain circumstances look and sound like a, you know have a man's body then that would throw up problems for the women in that ward potentially but the 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 kind of I think one of the things to be careful about this is there's a one, a suggestion that all well, trans people are, you know, predilected towards bad behavior, which is really where gender critical feminists let themselves down. There's a kind of an idea that anyone who is uh, trans is either got some kind of misogynistic elements to them or is in fact perverted, but also that, you know, the sex offenders thing. Fair enough for Shadi Javid to open up an investigation about this. But I mean, are we suggesting that NHS wards demand people's criminal records before they access care? Would it matter if someone was a sex offender a month ago and be convicted or 25 years ago? You know, there's, uh, do we not believe in redemption anymore and rehabilitation? You know, are you forever a prisoner and a criminal if you've been through the system and come out the other end? So, you know, I think it's a really good example of where you need some nuance and some ability to suggest, you know, vulnerability as a patient. You become a different kind of a citizen when you enter a, a hospital ward. And that's the same for women. And it's also the same for trans people because, you know, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't poo-poo the fact that when someone is in that vulnerable position, it's probably just as upsetting for a trans person to work up in a different sex ward and be surrounded by men or women, trans women, whatever you are. Uh, and the most important thing to know is that nurses and doctors have been dealing with this informally for years and have been very sensitive about it for years. And so it feels a little bit like a panic over something that could, should be have a little bit more nuance to it. But I think the difference here is the fact that we're talking about a question of kind of, it's beyond the question of dignity as well, because it's about the sort of yeah. question of safety. Because this is the thing in relation to women's prisons, where obviously this has been very horrendous, high profile cases of male bodied people who have been convicted of rape and sexual assault, getting into women's prisons and, you know, continuing to commit those acts. Um, there is obviously a concern here with something similar repeating itself. And I don't think that you have to not believe in redemption or believe that all trans people are potential sex offenders or believe that all men are potential sex offenders as it happens. I know there's yeah, a fair yeah. amount of feminists who believe all of those things. But nevertheless, <laughs> to think that this is fundamentally a problem, because it's not to say that all these people are perverts, male, trans women, whatever, and therefore you've got to keep them away from women. It's to suggest that that loophole, if you create it, can and will be exploited, often exactly. by people who aren't trans, probably. I mean, this is the thing. It's not to suggest that this is going to happen en masse, but it's for things like this why there are sex-based rights and sex-based spaces, is to not hold back the kind of abusing hordes, trans women, male or whatever. Because in these certain circumstances, you, people do want that extra level of dignity, but also that extra level of protection. And when you look at some of the details, I think it was a Telegraph um, investigation that pulled this out, singling out, um, I think it was Devon and Oxford and Nottinghamshire, where again, even a record as a sex offender will not necessarily bar you from a women's ward and that there's just some mitigation which is mooted are they on anti-libidinal medication all this sort of stuff 
that's concerning in of itself. But the other thing is, as we all know, the NHS is very stretched. And some of the quotes they have from people working on these wards is that we don't have time to do these risk assessments. So yeah, even, yeah. even if you want to kind of go into this sort of halfway house on this particular issue, it's obvious that this sort of thing isn't going to happen. Now, is this going to, uh, you know, lead to a kind of torrent of horrendous stories? Of course not. But at the same time, it's, it's, it just shows that this... Uh, willingness to just sort of bow down to gender ideology even in situations where just common sense dictates this is probably not a good idea is quite shocking um and it's just the sort of thing where we need to make clear that there's an importance to these spaces and it's not about smearing all trans people it's really not it's just about this there's a reason that such spaces exist and as you were saying there was a reason that from 1997 onwards every health secretary said we're going to get sex-based wards we're going to actually achieve it it's because it's an important thing that people want both for dignity and for safety so to just throw that out as seems to be happening is quite interesting it would be interesting to see if a health secretary ever repeated that pledge again (laughs) for this particular reason because it would just be too controversial and and i think you know there's always um there's always a balance to be struck isn't there and we or every time we discuss this issue on this podcast we always say that if you know in personal lives it's obviously correct to respect people's you know chosen pronouns chosen identity chosen name of course it would be completely and utterly deranged if you didn't and just plain rude but at the end of the day when you're balancing that in places where there are you know safety questions dignity questions does identity really is that really going to be the thing that trumps those issues, I don't think, I just don't think it can be. Well, it comes down to the, it, it, you know, you have two kind of, uh, you have two warring factions or, or perhaps not warring factions, but you've got two things to consider. You've got the trans person who's presenting and saying, I want to be in this, I want to, you know, for, ex- for the example of trans women, I want to be in a woman's ward, but looks ostensibly like a man. And then you've got to balance that with the women who don't want to be in a ward with someone who looks like a man. And that's another piece of that investigation, which is quite unfortunate as well, is the detail about, you know, actually pushing back against patients potentially in some cases i think it stopped now depriving mm. care to patients who want to push back against so that's the yeah. sort of nasty other yeah. side and you know a, a nurse or a doctor and particularly nurses who have to manage the wards also have to juggle the fact that most wards particularly ones that aren't in london are stretched anyway and you'd love you'd be you'd win the lottery if you got a private room so you have to juggle all these things but the you know to to suggest that I think the thing that really just gets my go is that either you say that everyone has a criminal record check before because I could be a sex offender. There's not you know I have heard things. Ever, <laughs> you know, or or are you comfortable being on on a ward with someone who's got a criminal record for theft and is going to pinch your purse when you go to the loo? Either you do a criminal record on everyone, which I think we'd all agree is don't want the NHS to be doing, or you're suggesting that because people are trans and then and you have a prejudice about what trans people do and are like. Like, then you suggest they have a criminal record. I think what's much a much better way of dealing with this and less a liberal is to say that both sides, and actually you're right, most of the time it's the kind of the side of trans activists who want to just without question shove their preferences down people's throats. Being respectful, even though that sounds wishy-washy, and saying that in a specific place like hospital care or vulnerable places like changing rooms, prisons, that a little bit of uh, being able to understand that your personal preferences aren't always going to be met and actually they're not sacred that everything mm. there has to be a informal debate about these things and if you have to go into a ward that you don't want to go into that's life anyone who's been to a hospital in the uk knows that you don't get to go on wards you want to go to you're usually on a trolley somewhere so like yeah, a little bit of perspective NHS in this is a bit well. more like a bit like hospitals in the developing world than any kind of <laughs> advanced country but that, you know there we are are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom anti-woke person in your life then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, 
tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU, and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you can get a 15% discount on anything. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spikes-online.com forward slash shop. Right, so let's uh, wrap this podcast up with the final story. Um, Paul Embry, friend of Spikes, has won his unfair dismissal case mm. after he was sacked from the Fire Brigades Union for giving a pro-Brexit speech. Tom, do you want to fill us in? Yeah, so it's a, it's a just end to quite a sorry episode, I think, from the whole Brexit wars. So Paul Embry, who was a high-ranking official in the Fire Brigades Union, um, had been a firefighter since 1997, very involved in the union for more than 10 years, so very much committed. And committed the sin essentially of attending and speaking at the leave means leave rally which was in on the 29th of march 2019 that's the kind of original brexit day the original end of the first article 50 period and all the rest of it brenda o'neill also spoke there claire fox kate hoey nigel farage which is where he got in trouble really (laughs) and even though he spoke um as a representative of trade unionists against the EU. He did this on his own time. He didn't mention his union whatsoever. Mm. It was alleged that he had essentially committed gross misconduct by sharing a platform with people who shouldn't be shared a platform with um, for contradicting the union's anti-Brexit policy um, and also for failing to basically exempt the FBU from his general criticisms in the speech of the Labour movement, which is to say, when are you going to get on the side of the people rather than big business, which is a completely fair point. And they investigated him, they um, suspended him, they barred him from um, office for two years, and he's now won this employment tribunal. And what's fascinating about the ruling is that it's just so categorical. I mean, it talks Mm. about the fact, it's worth making a distinction. It says, just as a point of fact, that he wasn't dismissed because of his pro-Brexit views. It was for attending this rally. But the picture it paints really is one of an attempt quite clearly to get him really mm. from the um, higher ups at the FBU. I mean, the quotes in there are amazing. Refer- the judge refers to it as a witch hunt, as a fishing exercise of a predetermined outcome. Some of the evidence they heard about Matt Rack, who's the general secretary there, accusing him in meetings of emboldening the far right, another high ranking official saying he's out to get you, all, essentially all this kind of stuff. And it's really shocking on its own terms. But I think the thing that makes this of broader interest is the fact that throughout all of this, you know, a firefighter and a trade unionist being thrown under the bus by his own union, essentially for attending a pro-leave rally, is that uh, most of the Labour movement just looked at their shoelaces. They didn't really say anything about this. He got a lot of support, it seems like, from rank-and-file FBU members and other people in the Labour movement. But aside from a few, there's like a few articles in the Mirror, there was a few prominent people who came out in support of him, but everyone kind of ignored him. And then he also became a target of kind of twatty, posh Corbynistas who would initiate pylons against him for increasingly tenuous reasons (laughs) from time to time. So I think in all of this, it kind of actually proved some of the points that Paul was making in his speech at that rally, which is to say that the the left have abandoned Euroscepticism, become incredibly intolerant, sided with the establishment, but also, as we see, just abandoned any kind of sense of, of dissent as well, which yeah. is an, another one of his criticisms. So, yes, it's uh, I'm sure it's quite bittersweet insofar as what a horrendous thing to go through, but at the same time, vindicates a lot of the points that he's been making for the past few years. Yeah, Ella, that's what I wanted to put to you, actually. I mean, you know, what does this tell us about the broader left, you know, the abandonment of free speech, democracy, their kind of complete 
aversion to Brexit was very strange to a lot of people. Well, that's the thing. I mean, don't want to downplay what Paul's been through. It's no one should have had to go through that. And, you know, for him financially, emotionally, everything, his life's got turned upside down and it's terrible. But, you know, I think it's, if you were to pull a silver lining from it, his it has vindicated everything he said. Mm. And he he now has this example of saying uh, everything that actually he talked about on that platform at that rally, because I was in the crowd, about the fact that, uh, you know, he bemoaned the absence of left-wing viewpoints on this. I mean, he was actually kind of, in his interviews and everything he's talked about in Brexit, he said... Part of the problem is that this discussion gets co-opted by people like Nigel Farage. And if you don't want Brexit to become a Faragey type thing, which all the left have so cowardly claimed mm. it has been all the way through, then you've got to stand up. All you Eurosceptics in the Labour movement have got to stand up and come forward. But of course, we know that in 2016, they didn't, that Corbyn and Owen Jones and all these people who were previously <laughs> yeah. supposedly Eurosceptic. Owen Jones, the coiner of Lexit. No yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, ducked out when, when, when it really mattered. And so you, you have this kind of, you know, I mean, and then this is where I divide with Paul because Paul still wants to uh, try and rehabilitate Labour as a vehicle through which you could um, kind of rehabilitate some of these backward feelings. But actually, it, what I think it proved is particularly with the division between the rank and file FB members and the uh, officials is that this has never been unions are no longer, and particularly the unions that are sort of almost Romaniac now, which many of them were, mm. we saw in the referendum. It's a bizarre statement. Uh, yeah, <laughs> are no longer about looking at what is what it is that working class interests are, what it is the way in which working class people are talked about, which in the Bre context of Brexit was like you, you were kind of like second class citizens if you voted for Brexit. Instead, it's about playing up to a kind of the either the identity politics um, outlook or the kind of uh, middle class protectionist sort of um, Europhile view of of the Remainer side. And so, you know, if we can learn a lesson from Paul Embry, it's that the the left or, or and particularly the Labour left, it doesn't exist anymore in any kind of meaningful way. It doesn't stand for anything. Uh, sort of progressive what it what it really is is a kind of uh clinging on to authority by means of these kind of um disassociated from their from their members remainer middle class woke whatever you want to call it kind of factions that don't have much play in the world other than trying to get their officials who disagree with them sacked so it's a sorry mm. tale and and you know solidarity with Paul I'm glad that he won his case but there shouldn't be more Paul Embrys there shouldn't be more cases like this we should learn from it Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.